This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here from the floor of my Toronto Airbnb, and I'm also in Toronto with Richard Lawson. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> David Canfield. Hello. And joining us here up north is Hillary Busis. Uh, Richard, you took my line. <laughs> <laughs> that was your joke originally. I feel lousy about that. Sorry, Hillary. <laughs> You're such a hoser, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard anyone say the word hoser, and I'm now sad about it. Uh, hello to all of our Canadian listeners who hopefully are not mad at us for uh, talking about their culture. Um, unlike when we usually record this podcast, I have seen all of you recently and talked to you in person, um, which is a complete thrill for me. And now I have to go back through five days of running into each other on sidewalks and going, what did you see? What did you like? Because that is really what the experience of Toronto is, something I love very much. Um, it's kind of hard to know where to start with the amount of films we've seen recently, but I do feel like the spirit of Toronto is the audiences. Like the People's Choice Award is something that's really revered here. Richard, you wrote a post for our live blog kind of sussing out who might be the contenders for it. I have had such a great time rediscovering Toronto audiences and feeling that energy going through. Um, so I thought maybe we'd start with not necessarily your predictions for the People's Choice Awards. I think we can get there. But like, what has been the audience hit for you? What is the movie you have sat in at this festival and said, oh my God, people are really into this? And then kind of sense of where that movie could go from there. Hillary, I'm going to make you start because this is your first Toronto. This is my first Toronto. Um, you know, it's it's fresh in my mind, my answer for that question, because it's a movie that we saw yesterday, which was Hitman, um, Richard Linklater's new movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, starring, uh, oh, my God, why? I'm sorry that I cannot remember Glenn's last name. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen... Glenn Powell. Glenn Powell. I've seen 20, like, five movies in the past six days. So I'm sorry, Glenn Powell. Um, you are very good in this movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was just such a, it's such a good time. It's like a really zippy crime thriller. Um, the audience was laughing. There was spontaneous applause. It was just such a fun experience uh, at the movies, as well as being in a movie that I think would be very enjoyable, even if you watched it on your own. Um, so yeah, that was, it was last night, which is probably why it came to my mind first. But that is my answer for that question. Yeah, and Richard, you saw Hitman in Venice, so you weren't there to see it in Toronto. But you said it got, like, a similar response, even though Venice is a very different festival, which I think bodes well for this movie. Yeah, the Italians aren't a passionate people, so they don't really react to things normally. <laughs> um, uh, no, like, the, there is a scene in this movie where uh, 
just kind of like this, the real centerpiece scene. And at the end of it in Venice, people applauded and cheered. And I, I'm told that that happened again it, here. It sure did. Yeah. And this it is did. a movie it was that, great. Yeah. Uh, and this movie is for sale. It does not have a distributor as we record this. Um, it might by the time people hear I, it. I think it's yeah. going to, yeah. 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 Um, but like, it just makes a great case for itself. And it it makes a great case for Glenn Powell as... Like, look, we got it. We got to find new movie stars. You know, like mm-hmm. we have to find bankable people. And I hope that a distributor who's not a streamer takes a risk on this and releases it theatrically and says, hey, remember the guy from Top Gun Maverick? Like, or whatever else you've seen him in? Um, because it's such a star turn and people love the movie. And that's not just Festival Fever. If it's happened at two festivals, that to me says that there's something consistent about that movie. And um, yeah, I hope it, it sells for a lot of money and that it actually comes out in theaters because uh, I think it deserves it. It deserves a theatrical audience. It deserves yeah. like a collective experience because yeah. it's really fun. Yeah. And a real showcase of his skill, of, of Richard Linklater's skill, because you know, you see the title Hitman, and I, I was me. I, I honestly knew nothing about it, so I was expecting, you know, Rivera action sequences. David Fincher's the killer. David Fincher's the killer. <laughs> yeah, something a little bit more, um, maybe spiffy. Uh, and and this movie, you can tell, doesn't have a lot of money to work with necessarily, but it moves so brilliantly, and he's just so good at creating these comic set pieces, these tense set pieces, and he keeps the audience kind of on the edge of their seat while also laughing really from what I observed and in my own personal experience from beginning to end. And that's really hard to do in that kind of genre if you don't really know how to put a movie together. And so it's kind of just the basics in many ways that make it such a great time. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. I'm going to move backwards in time for myself a little bit, um, just you know, starting from yesterday, um, because right before I saw Hitman, I saw what I think is a less likely audience crowd pleaser, but really worked almost as well, which was Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, uh, which had mm-hmm. been at Telluride. David, I think you saw it there. Um, mm-hmm. I was sitting like way up in the balcony, and like people were so into this movie, and it's it's a very different kind of film. It's like wintry and set at a prep school, and it's got Paul Giamatti as this kind of professor who nobody likes and doesn't want to be with this kid, and people dealing with various traumas, Um, but it's also funny and really sharp and, like, really carefully done in its period setting. Um, Dave I. Joy Randolph, I think, I don't remember if we talked about her from Telluride, but, like, she pops so much in this movie. In addition to Paul Giamatti and the teenage star who who has his name handy. Anybody? It's the first time he's ever been in a movie. Dominic Sessa, I think, mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, he's also incredible. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it's so in the holdovers, Paul Giamatti is a professor. In Hitman, Glenn Powell's character is a professor, in addition to being a fake hitman. So it's a very funny double feature. Um, but I did the, the holdovers got such a warm reception that I think sleeping on it for the People's Choice Award was, would be a mistake. Yeah, I th- I think it is really crowd pleasing while also being a complicated and uh, idiosyncratic movie. You know, it's not just a straight down the middle like 
easy movie. Um, It has its prickly edges. But I think that the thing about the Toronto audiences is that they don't always go for, you know, yeah, they gave it to Green Book. They gave it to, you know, like they, they, but oftentimes they also pick something that's trickier, Mm -hmm. that's darker. I mean, you know, I don't love the movie, but they like gave it to three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, you know, that year. Or even the Fablemans over Glass Onion, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so. 12 Years a Slave, wasn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I saw the movie yesterday, like you, Katie, and I really liked it. But then as I wrote about it for my review, I liked it that much more. And then in mm-hmm. talking with you guys at a party, <laughs> I liked it then even more. Like, it's it's just, it really seeps in. And I think that depending on when on audiences here vote, like, do they do it right after they walk out of the screening? I don't know. Like, I think that movie, The, the Holdovers, has real, like, lasting impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would be surprised if it's not in that top three at, at minimum. Um, because yeah, it, it's, a, it, it's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, it, it has that nice intersection of like heft and coziness um, mm-hmm. that is kind of custom built for this audience uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, you could even, I mean, it's a very different movie, but The Fablemans won last year. And um, I think it's a similar sort of like going along with it, but also you are in the hands of Steven Spielberg uh, kind of feeling. Yeah, I think about uh, I think about like the movies that I would go to see with my family, uh, like on Christmas. Um, you know, being uh, Jewish, that is the tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like we would have gone to see the holdovers, and everybody would have left it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you can do that. It's coming to theaters <laughs> at some point in the next month or two. I think it's a Thanksgiving release, so there you go. Oh, it's a great Thanksgiving release. It's perfect. It's made. It's made for you to go to the theater with your parents and your children and like and everybody the teenager who doesn't want to be with you but has to go anyway at all. <laughs> and it opens the teenager up to the beautiful world of movies. Yeah, yeah, much like the Fablemans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think we all really like this movie, and it's you know I, I think. There's never total consensus at these things, but this movie is about as close as I've seen to a really strong consensus, at least among general audiences of like really, really strongly liking this movie. Yeah. Which bodes very, very well, usually. Uh, David, I don't think you've picked a uh, an audience pick yet. I mean, that kind of that that was actually my pick. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no. I mean, it's it's probably not the most obvious pick, just given I'd say where the tip audience has gone mostly of late. Um, but the other did, one, did you, re- see Amer- did you see American well, Fiction? Uh, yes, that was the other one to okay. really watch for is American Fiction, and that would be the most, in my opinion, maybe exciting winner. I mean, and from what we know of this award, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, it's been a long time since the winner has not gone on to a Best Picture nomination. And The Holdovers is, you know, very comfortably in that conversation. Hitman, I I would be surprised if it's even released this year, so I don't think it's as relevant. Um, And that doesn't speak badly of Hitman. It just feels like it would be a good, fun spring movie. Yeah, Yeah. not at all. Um, And in fact, it would, you know, if someone picked it up and decided to release it this year and it won the People's Choice Award, we would be talking about it in that conversation. But I do think American Fiction winning it, and it is a real possibility, um, because that was a hell of a screening, Mm-hmm. Um, would really significantly determine its Oscar trajectory and I think indicate that it's a real player. It is a comedy, and that's why it played so well. Uh, it's a really smart comedy written and directed by Cord Jefferson, um, but it has a really beautiful understated performance from Jeffrey Wright. Um, it's a movie of really big ideas and Jefferson really untangling them in a lot of different modes and contexts over the movie's two-hour runtime. 
but it's something that he he renders it in a way where you go with it and you can really laugh uncomfortably at times at some of the observations he's making. And I, I think it, it does have that slightest bit of, of broadness that can carry it over because um, it was a little bit broad, more broad than I was expecting. And that would probably work in its favor here. And if it works in its favor here, then it can carry on that momentum. Yeah, I think whenever we start talking about Oscars here, which happens all the time, we kind of come around to how many contenders there are in both of the lead acting categories, I think. But I really would love for Jeffrey Wright to get a proper push for this. He's been Mm -hmm. great forever. He's never been nominated. It's such a great lead role for him, even though the movie, as you said, David, is like kind of a broader comedy, which is not necessarily an awardsy thing. He really anchors it. Like there's a lot of range in that performance that he's giving. It's not the straightforward literary satire that I think I was expecting. And I think it's a richer movie for that. Um, So I don't know how you break past all the other contenders we've been talking about, but I would really love for them, for um, MGM to help them try. I think that like there's an interesting similarity between uh, American fiction and Hitman. I mean, even though those they seemingly have nothing in common and that like you're watching these two great actors get like really juicy lead roles, mm-hmm. you know, that and that, that's not what Jeffrey Wright or Glenn Powell are, are often, you know, able to do. Mm-hmm. And they really proved themselves. I think also, you know, comparing American fiction to the holdovers is like these are two great kind of long talky movies that have no gimmick they're just they're just about ideas and people connecting about academics yeah about yeah. academics yeah like they're just very like i mean Alexander Payne deliberately made the old uh, the holdovers to feel kind of old fashioned in 1970s american fiction is is trying much more to be contemporary i think mm-hmm. it sort of fails in that a little bit um but people can read my review if they want where i talk about that more but like I love that at this festival that is so crowded and, you know, there's 18,000 movies to see that these two movies that are just about people having conversations have been Mm -hmm. like two of the biggest hits of the festival. Yeah. I think I would also say that for Anatomy of a Fall, um, if we want to talk about actresses, and that, you know, is not new to this festival. It was a can. I think we talked about it being a hot ticket at Telluride. But you talk about a movie that's really people having conversations and in the French court system, which is bananas from what I can tell where everyone's just talking to each other all the time. It's amazing. Um, But that movie is so thrilling for the way that it depicts those conversations. Um, And I think in terms of the can holdovers and like the international films that we'll be following throughout the season, that still feels like the undisputed uh, top talker of all of those. It's definitely the most accessible too. I mean, Perfect Days, which you and I saw, Katie, and really loved. Adored. Uh, loved it. Uh, yeah. One of the best films I've seen here for sure. Um, I have a hard time believing you can watch that movie and not be completely delighted by it. But it is, you know, especially the first half is largely dialogue-free, and it, it requires a little bit more of the viewer, um, whereas yeah. Anatomy of a Fall is both this really chewy character study that has this really, really amazing lead performance, but it's also a thriller and it it plays with, you know, questions of guilt and what happened and ambiguity in a way that, you know, it was compared a lot. I remember when it premiered at Cannes to a great HBO limited series, say, and I think it does have that appeal for those who want to go in with, um, you know, not, ex- not wanting this sort of French <laughs> character study experience as thoroughly. So it does hit scratch both itches. I, I should also one, say that a lot of Anatomy of, Fall, of a Fall is in English, which yes. was a yeah. delightful a delightful surprise for me <laughs> coming to Canada for the first time, waking up at 7.30 to see a French movie. And guess what? A lot of it's in English. Congratulations, everyone. 
<laughs> yeah, well, Hillary can't read famously, so. so <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think another metric that we can talk about in terms of the People's Choice Award is, yes, we have these great, smart, accessible comedy dramedies, I guess you could call them. But there's also the tearjerker. And I saw this movie One Life here, uh, a British mm. film with Anthony Hopkins, that for the last 20 minutes of that movie, it's about um, this a true story about this man, a stockbroker in England who, in, as a young guy, like I think in the early 30s, he helped organize the rescue of almost 700 children from Prague before the Nazis invaded that city. And so he's responsible for basically like thousands of lives, like the, those people's grandkids, you know, are alive now. And um, and the last 20 minutes of that movie are just, it's impossible not to cry at them. And um, if I were a TIFF People's Choice voter, I probably would be like putting on my sunglasses to hide my tears and opening <laughs> my, my browser on my phone to like vote for that movie. Yeah. Those are the ones definitely to watch out for. Uh, it's you know it's this was a really um, rich festival in terms of you can go in a lot of different directions and I feel like the past few years, especially with COVID, it was kind of like you know picking a handful out of a not so great bag. And and while this TIFF was challenged in its own way, which we can definitely get into, there were a lot of different movies that played really really well um, that also have critics behind them that also have strong campaigns behind them. Not One Life because it doesn't have distribution yet, but um, you know it makes for a really interesting festival to talk about, uh, especially as we dive forward into whatever these next six months are going to look like. Because um, there's a lot there's a lot here, and that's what TIFF is supposed to be is that meeting ground for a lot of different kinds of contenders. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what we've missed that has, like, that we know is coming out this year already. I mean, I think when you talk about deep emotions, you get to origin, um, yes. which many of us saw together at the, you know, it it came from Venice, it got picked up by Neon, it is coming out this year, even though I've seen, like, five Neon films here. They have a lot going <laughs> on this season. Um, and, like, I think origin feels less successful to me than a lot of the other films we've been talking about in many ways, but I think the emotional pull of its last like 20, 30 minutes is pretty undeniable. And like you were saying, Richard, about walking out with your sunglasses on, like I think that really can sweep people away. And I think the responses to this, it might have the most mixed responses of anything I've seen. Like it's truly all over the place. Um, but the emotional impact is really hard to deny. Yeah. I don't know the last time or if ever I've seen a movie that I think is kind of bad that made me weep as much as Origin <laughs> did. <laughs> uh, because like the, the movie is, you know, it's based on this nonfiction kind of, you know, essay and book form about the caste systems across the world and how about, that is the root of like basically human suffering is that people arbitrarily decide who's better or worse, you know. And she, you know, fictionalizes uh, the author, played by Anjanou Ellis, who's really good. And the, the the end of that movie is just Anjanou Ellis in this, like, sonorous voice, like, reading from the book. And yeah. there's really, like, sentimental music playing, and it's showing you, you know, scenes of hardship across, you know, decades. And it's really moving, but the movie itself doesn't really hold together as a narrative film. But Neon buying it, I don't know, maybe they see something. And there have been people here who we have either talked to or seen, you know, posting reactions online who the movie really did connect for. And maybe mm -hmm. the combination of that emotional impact, which it undeniably has, and its academic sort of argument, I don't know, maybe people vote for that because it seems like it's, you know, I don't mean this pejoratively, but it's sort of vegetables 
served with, you know, nice seasoning, you know, like it, yeah. it, it's, it's a movie of importance and, uh, in terms of its argument. And so I don't know, maybe, maybe that pushes it over the edge. Yeah. I also wouldn't count out the boy and the heron, um, which we haven't mentioned yet, uh, but which mm-hmm. was the, op- uh, Tiff's opening night movie. Um, the possibly last movie, uh, by the animation master Miyazaki, um, that got a great reception in the room as well. I think, um, Although I don't know if anybody who's speaking on this podcast was necessarily in that group. I think, you know, obviously Miyazaki has legions of very devoted fans. I think that they were very pleased by this movie. Um, It is moving as well, even though I had no idea what was going on for maybe like (laughs) an hour and 45 minutes of it. (laughs) But it is, it's beautiful. It's engaging. Um, It's just, you know, visually so creative and, uh, idiosyncratic. And I I think that that probably has a decent shot too. I mean, it's certainly going to get nominated for the animated feature Oscar. That seems like pretty, uh, and could have, has a great chance of winning that too, I would imagine. Well, Hillary, I think, you know, just because this is your first time here, something you're not aware of is that a lot of the people who, well, a lot of the voters for the People's Choice are birds. And um, <laughs> the Miyazaki is a, a kind of strangely anti-bird movie. It's anti-bird, yeah. There are a lot of different kinds of birds. Each time you meet a new bird, they're causing they're some kind of trouble. And they all want to eat the little boy who seems very nice. <laughs> Hitman's yeah. very pro-bird, though, so I feel like we we tip the scales. We've balanced it out, yeah. <laughs> Not to be a cynic, but I, I feel like that the chances of that movie got punctured a little bit when it was revealed that it's probably not Miyazaki's last movie after all. I think there was this really enormous groundswell of him going out on this beautiful high note. And then the night of the premiere, I think a producer was like, actually, he's got more ideas again. And then it was like, <laughs> oh, well, it's a great movie. But he's but- also <laughs> in his 80s, right? Like, it's yeah, he's not going to be around forever. Like, you can yeah, but still we have celebrate been da- We have been down this road before. And- <laughs> yeah, if you've learned anything from American politics, Katie, it's that 80-year-olds don't always know when to stop. <laughs> you, we are in a particular election season right now. You may have heard. <laughs> He maybe also learned from Cher, you know, just say yeah. everything is your is your farewell tour. And yeah. just, just keep, keep that going for years. Keep going. Yeah. I do feel like we should talk about Next School Wins, which it had a huge audience response when I saw it at the premiere on Sunday night. I think it is undeniably a lighter, thinner movie than Jurassic Rabbit, which Taika Waititi won the People's Choice Award in 2019. Um, it went on to win the Oscar for it. Um I would imagine we're not going to hear much about it in terms of Oscar conversation, but I, I think mm-hmm. we've all kind of been curious about it going into it. And I, I don't want to say that, like, oh, well, it played really well at TIFF, and therefore it's, chances are gone. But, like, it feels like it's in a different class than a lot of what else we're talking about, I think. Yeah. it's it, it got really bad reviews, you know. I don't that, – that's that doesn't necessarily affect the People's Choice Award, but – I think you know this is a movie that yeah I critics think was, aren't people, Richard. No, well, we're certainly we're we're, we're basically birds in me. You know? um, but like you know, this movie has been was filmed years ago. It kind of sat on a shelf, and I mean, the pandemic obviously was a part of that. Um, but Taika Waititi was was at the premiere. He you know the audience was really into his you know sort of pre screening shtick and all that. But like I don't know, I just don't think there's enough movie there. You know, it's pretty mm-hmm. like you said, Katie. It's pretty thin. It's Taika kind of making a sports movie, but he's not really actually that interested in the dynamics of what make us what make a successful sports movie. Yeah. Um And yeah, I, I don't know. That was that movie was like. I, I did not care for it, and um, 
even though the audience was receptive, uh, seemingly in, you know, they were cheering and, and gasping and all that stuff. I don't know. I would be, I would be surprised if the discerning audiences who vote for the, the People's Choice Prize choose that sort of bit of fluff over a lot of the other movies we've talked about. Yeah. Richard, it sounds like if they do, you won't be mad. You'll just be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tiff. Oh, Toronto. Yeah. You're Paul Giamatti in the holdovers right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I do have one eye pointing one way and the other. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're calling the audience Visigoths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I would feel the same way. And like, I think Dumb Money is pretty good, actually, and also got a really big audience response. It's out in theaters this week. Um, I talked to Craig Lesby on the uh, earlier episode of the podcast this week. I like. I guess it could be an audience contender. It played really well. I think it's a really good movie. But again, it feels like something would be like, yes, great time. Let's move on throughout the season from here. Um, although I do really hope people go see it. That is one where I feel like you know, it premiered the same night as American Fiction, and I actually didn't get a chance to see it because I had a, I had a conflict. Um, but it, it was it is one that it just kind of died down very quickly. And American Fiction people were coming off of that premiere on such a high, and then obviously you have so many premieres, you know, coming later in the weekend. I, yeah. I just don't know that it really stuck uh, as much as I was expecting based on those initial responses. And and the reviews were also a little bit more mixed than I thought, just because everyone seemed to really enjoy it. Who I know, so. I'm not sure exactly what happened there, but um, it doesn't feel like it has the legs, from what I can tell. Oh yeah, and I would I would also be remiss uh, while talking about audience favorites, not to mention dicks. Uh, I think that I'm the only one of this group. I, it's the name of a movie, guys. <laughs> dicks. I am the only one. I am the only one of this group. Stops. <laughs> no one. No one else on this podcast has ever seen dicks, Hillary. So she's, what she's is, the what, only one. It's a bird. What are they like? I am. All right, laugh it up, clowns. It's Dicks the Musical. Dicks colon the Musical. A an A twenty four movie. It was the first uh, Midnight Madness showing at the festival. I went that first night. It was wild. Um, people were coming from a party at Hooters to go to see Dicks the Musical. Um. And it got it got a really wild response too. I mean, it was it's the sort of movie I, I reviewed it and I wrote this in the in the review. It's it's des- it seems destined for cult status. Um, it's not a it's not as obnoxious as you might think from a movie a with this title and b with that aspiration. Um, it feels like it comes by uh, its sensibility, honestly. Um, but yeah, there were there were a lot of laughs. There was a lot of uh, there was applause after every musical number. Um, people were very excited to see that um, the stars and writers of the movie, as well as their co-star Bo and Yang, um, had gotten a waiver so they could appear at the screening, which I think uh, drove up uh, the energy a lot. Um, but yeah, it was it's a very funny movie, um, and I think that it has a future as a as a very specific niche kind of crowd pleaser. And it's out in theaters in like early October, right? So it's got Very soon, its moment yes. is coming. Yeah. Yes. I wonder if they'll screen it at midnight uh, as much as possible to capture that like giddy, exhausted energy that it seemed to have that first night of Tiff. Yeah, I think that uh, that definitely contributes. That's it's not the kind of movie you would want to see in a screening room at ten a.m. Yeah. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. 
What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Is there anything, so we've talked about audiences a ton, which again, I think is such a highlight of TIFF, but I mean, a lot of us are seeing great stuff that is not necessarily the movie that's got audiences like having a mid-movie applause break or anything like that. I mean, David, you mentioned Perfect Days, which we both really loved and is also out from Neon this year. Um, What else did you just like, regardless of what audiences thought? We should probably talk about Women of the Hour, um, because yeah. as of this hour, it is the really the, the acquisition out of TIFF and, and the biggest sale by far. I think it's the only sale that I know of out of TIFF. Yeah, um, hopefully there are more by the time people hear this. Yeah, uh, but certainly, and I think it'll probably stand even by Thursday as the, the priciest one. Um, look, this was a rough TIFF, generally speaking, for certain celebrities making directorial debuts. I will not name whose <laughs> were worse than others, but it was a little <laughs> rough. And Anna Kendrick uh, really showed her chops with this debut. And it's now with Netflix for $11 million. I'm sure they will you know, give it a really splashy release. I don't really think it's an awards movie, but it's a really auspicious start for, for Kendrick, who uh, stepped uh, behind the camera for this movie pretty last minute. She was already attached to star in it. There's a few sequences where you kind of immediately know you're in the hands of someone who can, you know, make a really good movie. I think that the movie's a bit stretched out and uh, there's not a ton there. They have to fill in some of the blanks. It's, it's the story of this woman uh, who went on a on the dating game, the game show in the 70s and encountered a serial killer unknowingly. Um, and she just rings so much suspense and really dark humor out of it. I was really impressed by it. Um, and it's a movie that a lot of people were talking about and that really rose above what a narrative of this Toronto became, which was a bunch of popular actors making their directorial debuts and maybe not getting as warm a reception uh, as they were hoping for. She was not among the, that group. Yeah, it's funny. I was at the premiere for that movie and I got the sense pretty early on in the movie that a lot of the audience members who had like maybe briefly scanned plot descriptions on the TIFF website and saw Anna Kendrick dating show and we're like, mm-hmm. oh, that'll be cute. <laughs> and then it opens with a brutal murder. <laughs> you're like, oh, it, and they it were, just like, feel like audience, a statement. It really yeah, does. Yeah, the, the audience like had to shift and sort of realign expectations. But I think that movie has maybe some script problems here or there. But like, mm-hmm. I, I do think that Anna Kendrick making her directorial debut, not with an easy, you know, sort of contemporary rom-com or whatever one might expect. Like, you know, she took on a big challenge, you know. Uh, It's a structurally complex movie. It's a dark movie. Um, And she really does prove herself to be a director. Like, she has visual sensibility and um, she's there's interesting sort of pacing and tension in the movie that, you know, is not easy to create. And, and she does, you know, there, there's an unbearably suspenseful scene toward the end of the film that I think is really well done and yep. echoes, um, I mean, even like Fincher's Zodiac, you know, like it, wow. it, it, it's not, it's not 
you know, it's not that, but it 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 kind of like makes a case for itself and for her um, directing movies in the future. There is a, there is a short movie within this movie that if, if she, cause she kind of fills out a lot of it with the general stuff of this serial killer. Whereas the core story of this woman and this man, uh, which is the heart of the movie, if that was the final product, I think would be like an Oscar contender. It's the, the filmmaking on wow. it is so strong and her command of tone is so impressive. I mean, the dating game sequences particularly are like funny and really uncomfortable and the audience very uncomfortably laughing. Um, it's exactly, you know, it's exactly what she want, wants that reaction to be. Um, and I was just really impressed by the way she got that, got to that, because it's it's not easy. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what she does next. I feel like when you see this many movies in close proximity and like a varying quality, you appreciate mastery of tone more than you would otherwise. Like having an audience kind of with you on something like that and trying to take them somewhere where they're not willing to go. Like when you watch it fail in some movies that are less successful and then you see it in a good one, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, <laughs> it's actually possible. I feel like I kind of like, exercise my brain a little bit by seeing so many movies back to back here. It, it's an ineffable sort of idea, but like, you know, yeah, when you see movies at this volume, like we have the last, for the last, you know, six days, when something, you know, even 10 minutes in, you're like, oh, this is a movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, like that, that really connects, you know? And um, I think that like Anna Kendrick pulled it off and a seasoned veteran like Richard Linklater who sought out to just make a populist, entertaining, sexy movie. And you're like, oh, that's really working. And I think that the pain movie like feels that way too. Like um, there, I haven't seen a ton of complete duds here. I know that they are out there. I believe they all are. three of you were at one last night. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but like, um, but there is a distinction to be made. And I think that even in an uncertain year, you know, David had kind of alluded to this, that like, you know, this year was strange there, like because of the strikes, I think Toronto of all the big festivals suffered the most mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what wasn't here. Um, we didn't have a lot of carryover from Venice or Telluride. Um, there were a couple of replays, of, you know, from those festivals in Cannes, but otherwise it was a lot of untested movies kind of trying to, you know, catch our attention. But, you know, by the end of this run now, we're like, you know, we're all kind of leaving today or tomorrow. Like, I do feel satisfied, you know. Yeah, and same. I'm curious, Hillary, like this being your first time, like, did it feel like a big kind of robust experience where you've you've seen a lot of stuff that, you know, you'll be thinking about or talking about for the next few months? Well, I haven't seen a lot of celebrities, um, which I understand <laughs> is not the, not the normal tip experience. I saw Willem at least. He was everywhere. Oh, um... I missed him, and now I feel like I have to go onto the streets and, and try to find him. Um, I feel like he doesn't blend in well. If you see him, you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. Um, I mean, Nicolas Cage apparently was also here, and I don't think I saw him. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I've i been having a great time. Um, there are definitely movies that I wish were here that I'm going to have to catch at a New York Film Festival, but that's only in a couple of weeks. So um, looking forward to being getting the opportunity to do that. But, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's really, it's really fun. It's really fun to see five movies in a day. Um, it makes you feel like you've gone a little crazy. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't have anything to compare the experience to. So I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, this is the best tips ever been. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I think that's the right attitude. Yeah. Hillary, are there any um, smaller movies that you've seen and loved that you want to shout out? Um, I don't know if this counts as a smaller movie, but yesterday, um, right before Hitman, I did see a can carryover, um, Monster, the Hirokazu Koreeda mm. movie. Um, Richard, I think you also saw it out of can and you really, really liked it. 
Yeah, yeah. No, um, there is a review of it on the website if people want to read it. There is. Um, <clears throat> it's nice to go into it without knowing that much. I had read your review, so I had a sense of where the story was going. Um, but it's just a really, like, it's just a really beautiful and uh, kind of heartbreaking, I mean, very heartbreaking story about two Japanese boys. Um, uh, I, I'm, i like, going to be thinking about it for a long time. It really yeah. uh, grabs you. I'm glad that played here because it, you know, it won an award at Cannes, I think, for screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, it did, yeah. But otherwise kind of flew under the radar. Like, it wasn't, like, one of the most talked about movies back in May. And I think that that's what Toronto, among other things, they 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 world premiere a lot of interesting stuff, but it's also a really important festival to sort of re up momentum for a movie that you know mm-hmm. was at a festival earlier, maybe Sundance, maybe Cannes, and I think that we saw that happen with Anatomy of a Fall, uh, certainly Zone of Interest, certainly. Um, but I'm glad that Monster also is part of that, um, along with the Vin Vendors Perfect Days. Yeah. That, you know, you guys loved. Yeah, it was interesting because coming into Toronto. Perfect Days had just been selected by Japan as its its Oscar submission, which was a, a surprise because Vendors is not Japanese and Japan had never done that before. And so I think you know, for me, just completely candidly for my job's purposes, I had Monster on my schedule for Thursday and I had to switch it to Perfect Days because it's obviously now more important that I see Perfect Days. Um, but I was really excited for the Korean and I was sad to have missed it. Um, so I'm now even more excited that there are more fans on this podcast. Yeah. Um, I wanted to shout out Sing Sing, which David and I both saw, yes, and I feel terrific. like I've just been like walking around, like beating a cane on the sidewalk, being like, "See the other Coleman Domingo movie," because I, I I think he's really good in Rustin, and I think that you know that movie is back by Netflix. It will be kind of everywhere this season, but it feels like Sing Sing really deserves a champion. It's a smaller movie. It came here without distribution. Um, it is directed by Greg. Quadar and co-written by Clint Bentley and Greg Quadar. I think Clint Bentley directed Jockey, which is a movie I did not oh, see. Clint but Collins Jr. Yes, sure. and like people really praised that movie and his performance. I did not know it was it, the same director. He's the writer, um, um, I think. Um, anyway, so in a similar thing where I think, you know, Coleman Domingo is anchoring this really like small and intimate and really lovely story about a theater troupe in the Sing Sing prison. Um, and it's not like, here comes this teacher to teach all these prisoners how to act. It's like very much from the perspective of the people who are living in Sing Sing. Um, they co-wrote it with um, the character that Coma Domingo's character is based on, and then another guy who plays himself, mm-hmm. who was formerly incarcerated in Sing Sing. It's just this really amazing, you know, use of the voices of the people who have actually lived there and made this work. And, you know, funny and emotional. And I was, it was such a, like a gem. That's a great feeling of a festival like this is where you see something you don't know anything about and are kind of blown away. So I really want more people to see that one. I hope, uh, Distributors pay attention to that one. I, I, we yes. both got a Sound of Metal vibe from that movie. One mm-hmm. that's just because of the amount of big titles is destined to fly under, a little under the radar, but with a really strong lead performance and a really good movie. And that yeah. has a real effect on you and an impact that I think could really translate within the right campaign if it's released at the right time. You know, a lot does have to go right for that movie to really find an audience, but I hope it yeah. gets the chance. Yeah. Also, Paul Racy, who is in Sound of Metal, is also in it, which is another <laughs> an important, 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 <laughs> important overlap there. Yeah. Um, one other acquisition title, I would, well, hopefully, maybe, hopefully, not an acquisition title by the time this goes live uh, that uh, a lot of us really loved was His Three Daughters. Yeah. Um, which is the new Azazel Jacobs film. Uh, I know quite a few, you know, like studio people and, and folks who are, you know, working on this awards race who saw that movie who were pretty blown away by Natasha Leone. 
mm-hmm. uh, as was I. She's, I think it's definitely the best performance she's given in a film. And it's just really heartbreaking and funny and plays to every strength she has as a performer. There's a, there are always a number of grief dramas and families coming home for some unfortunate situation dramas at TIFF uh, that are seeking distribution. And it's very hard to tell which are the ones worth seeking out. And um, I, I was a fan of Jacobs's film, The Lovers, with Deborah Winger and Tracy Letts. Um, I didn't care as much for French Exit, which was his last movie. Um, but this felt like his best film and one that could get uh, some real traction with the performances. Elizabeth Olsen and Carrie Coon are the other two sisters who are also excellent. Um, and it's just, you know, a really beautifully filmed chamber piece that I think seemed to really resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we often come to TIFF thinking that a lot of these acquisition titles will come out next year. Um, That's often the pattern for it. Like, every now and then you get, like, I think Still Alice was acquired at Toronto and then Open and Rabbit Hole. Um, But I'm wondering if, like, given the strike and given the kind of uncertainty about the release schedule, if we might see more of these films come out later in the year um, and kind of add into the Oscars conversation from there. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean, one of the odd things that I think was a bit unexpected, actually, at this TIFF was that most of those films still didn't have any talent here. They elected not to go for interim agreements because there was the fear that it could impact the sales process. And indeed, yeah. Women of the Hour did not get an interim agreement. Anna Kendrick wasn't even in attendance because she's also in the film. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a very muted premiere for, I think, what would have been a really big premiere in Toronto. But then Netflix buys it right away for $11 million, which... You know, you may read into that as a kind of statement on the studio side. Um, I think that that was a really uncomfortable, bubbling reality of this festival was most of those indies, which very well could have gotten into room agreements, chose not to. Um, and History Daughters is another one that didn't have one. So, yeah, we will uh, we'll see how that goes. But, you know, they wouldn't they they are struck projects as long as they don't have an agreement. So it wouldn't even matter. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and some of the industry people I've talked to have really emphasized how heartbreaking that is for filmmakers to make something. And, you know, if you're Anna Kendrick, you have this incredibly auspicious debut and you're watching it happen from afar. Like, it's the reality that they're living in, but you really, um, you feel for them having to miss out on that moment. And there's no there's no right answer. Well, the producer for um, uh, Woman of the Hour, uh, you know, she gave the kind of pre-screening little introduction um, and read a, a note, you know, that, that Kendrick had written being like, despite not being there right now, this is the most important moment of my career. And you're just like, oh, oh man. Like, God. like, yeah. and look, and I know that she supports the strike. Everyone on this podcast does. Like, you know, we're, yeah. we're not saying like, oh, the dumb unions have ruined this moment for Anna Kendrick. The dumb studios did and the dumb idiots who, who bought the movie did, you know. Um, <laughs> but like, I don't know. It's just like, it. I, but I think that like the festival with regard to the strike, like, and, you know, there were interim agreements and, and I know some people feel kind of conflicted about those. But like, I think all in all, like the festival bared up well. They were respectful toward um, why the strike was happening and, 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 and what limits it puts on, you know, the sort of festival experience. And I think the audiences, I, I guess I maybe cynically thought for years, this is my ninth time coming to this festival, that like that a lot of the audiences that, in the public screenings um, were ginned up because there were movie stars in the room. And mm-hmm. they were still just as excited and clapping and saying R at the piracy thing, like, like despite <laughs> there being no movie stars. And I think that, like, that's, a, you know, a testament to the famously, you know, amazing Toronto audiences. 
but also just that like at the end of the day, like the work is what matters and therefore the people who make the work should be paid fairly. It almost felt like, I almost had the feeling of this, the audiences at this festival are so incredible. And I feel like if you're premiering a movie- Are you guys recording an ad for next year right now? (laughs) (laughs) You guys are going to be the bumper. We did just have Cameron Bailey on the podcast, so um, thanks Cameron. David and I are the Zendaya and Anne Hathaway of this podcast. (laughs) No, you all say and sing for the love of film. Magnificence, magnificence never ends. Hillary, Hillary and Katie, please clap along to Richard and I recording our ad. Thank None you. of this um, will make any sense to people who've yes. not been to TIFF, unfortunately. No, but I mean, I, I think a lot of it was obvious that quite a few movies that may have gone to Toronto chose not to go because of this, and I, I wonder if that was a mistake. I wonder if mm-hmm. you you gin up a lot of excitement here in a way. You're, you know, Telluride does a really good thing for movies in a different way, as does Venice, as does New York. But Toronto is unique in that it 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 broadens it. It broadens the appeal. It broadens the way people can think about the movie and the kind of narrative you can set for it. And there are a few movies that I'm thinking of that were at Telluride that I saw that uh, some I think were right not to come here, but some I think really could have used it that maybe didn't get as strong of a launch as they were hoping for. Um, I feel like Saltburn was a big one that I was thinking you said of specifically. You said <laughs> I haven't seen Saltburn. This is my guess that it feels like something that's like a thriller and, you know, like funky and could really, you know, you get something that like engages an audience in that way and it can really soar here. Yeah. A movie like Poor Things doesn't need it because it's just like riding so high that, you know, New York's going to be huge and it's. Although, weirdly, it was going to come out this week, right? Which I, is hard for me to fathom. Um, Imagine yeah. if a, a, a Venice, you know, top prize winner was like, and it's out next week. <laughs> like, like that just, yeah. <laughs> no, I think Saltburn definitely could have been here. I think the bike riders probably That's could a, have yes, gotten- Yes, that was the other one I was thinking of. A big bump. I haven't seen the bike riders, but- um, Yeah, I do think, David, that's an interesting point that like there was some caution and maybe some, you know, money-minded uh, calculation about like, well, if we can't put the talent there, is it worth like, there is cost to sending a movie to a festival like this, even sure. if you're not flying talent in, you know. Um, this is Disney and Amazon though, so let's be clear. <laughs> well, the, Right, so I'm saying like nonprofit companies don't have the resources uh, to do it. But like, yeah, I think you're right, David, that like, that, that there was this effusive reaction to so many titles here, despite the celebrity factor not really being in play for most of them, um, is a testament that the movies can stand on their own. I'm not saying that promotion uh, is not a huge part of a movie's life, be it yeah. financially or awards-wise, but like the work does speak for itself to an extent. And I think that you know some movies that have already shown at other festivals could have benefited from that. Uh, those mm-hmm. two in particular, yeah. We should mention NIAD, which, as we record this, hasn't screened at TIFF yet, but it is coming from Telluride to TIFF. And I think we expect it to get a similar reaction like what we're talking about. Um, so by the time you hear this, it will probably have gotten that bump as well. Yeah, I'm seeing it tonight. Um, I do think that that's the kind of thing, uplifting, true story, uh, you know, movie about accomplishment at an older age. Like maybe the audience winner, the, the People's Choice winner hasn't screened yet. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. it's NIAD tonight. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, before we wrap it up, I'm just going to make you guys say, top of your head, what was the best movie you saw here? I think I'm going to go with Perfect Days, although it's hard to choose. Hillary, best movie? I mean, I think The Holdovers. Good choice. David? Hillary called it bragging when I said, well, I saw a lot before, but so I have to... (laughs) So I can't say, you know, The Holdovers are Anatomy of a Fall. Um, I'm also going to say Perfect Days, I think. I thought it was really outstanding. All right, Richard. 
I agree with Hillary that David, it, it is bragging. Um, um, <laughs> I would say the holdovers, but just to like freshen things up, um, I, I really liked One Life. I mean, I like a movie that at a festival when I'm tired and stressed that just makes me forget that and weep. And that's what I did yeah. for the last <laughs> half hour of that movie. And in the spirit of the People's Choice Award runner-ups, I think probably a few of us would say American Fiction for number two. Yeah. That was a great one. It's been a good He's, tip, guys. Cora Jefferson is now the second most successful former Gawker writer. The first after you? Is, talk, is talking right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not to brag. You're yeah. the people's choice of Gawker alums. <laughs> yeah. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week, all back in our usual locations to see what the rest of fall holds for us. You can find us at VanityFair.com where our festival live blog is uh, going strong. We should maybe by the time you hear this, have a wrap up of the best of what we've seen. Um, Hopefully you can go back through it and kind of watch us go slightly crazy in real time and hopefully share the highlights of the best of what we saw. Um, Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And we're on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Hillary. Hillabuster. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of Academy voters come mid-January goes to Hillary Busis. I've seen 20, like, five movies in the past six days. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.